0: Salutan and Bonvenon to Casperanto, the Esperanto podcast where we examine movies, literature, and other media that use our favorite Conlang, Esperanto. I'm your host Minomius Aaron and I'm joined by my co-host
1: Jacob Gulliver. Dankon pro mi vi spektaklo. Mitre exitas paroli pri unu el alamanta filmoj faritaj en Esperanto. Ciuni komencu. vi Jacob, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. This is a, a
0: blast. Yeah, I enjoy doing this show a lot. You know, there's over 2 million Esperanto speakers, or Esperantists, worldwide, so it's good to know that we have a dedicated audience. I expect every one of them is, of course, listening to this show. So, Dankin, Oscar thank you, listeners. Well, I've been looking forward to this episode because the subjecto, the subject of our study today is a spooky film, Spokema Filmo, about devils and curses, Diabloi malbenoj. But this film Incubo. might be mm-hmm, Umkubo. Yeah, it might be cursed itself. Ooh, and uh, we can talk about. I that. like that. I like that. Yeah, we might get to that a little later. Uh, f- but first, the answer to our trivia question from last week. Uh, we are, of course, talking about the 1940 Charlie Chaplin classic, The Great Dictator. And our trivia yes. question was, what does the sign on the wall say when the barber and the soldier are getting hit in the head with a frying pan? And the answer is restaurasis, which is, of course, restaurant. And I think user PotoFumanto42 on Twitter had the correct answer. So thank you. We will DM you about your prize. Gratulo and congratulations. Well, let's talk about our film selection today. We watched the 1966 underground film Incubus, or Incubus, starring William Shatner and Alison Ames or at least I think we did. This is a weird movie. It feels kind yeah, of like, it's, uh, it's not
1: really a movie you watch. It's more a movie. You sort of let wash over you. Yeah.
0: You get through it and experience it and come out the other side, hopefully stronger. Right. Um, I remember, uh, what'd you, let's talk about you. when would you first hear about the film?
1: Um, you know, I, all I knew was that there was this kind of the lost film sort of thing and yeah. it had William Shatner in it. I knew he'd done at least one other film in Esperanto, but, uh, You know, just kind of an odd thing with this sort of, you know, strange cult following actor, you know.
0: Yeah, I had always heard that it was um, the, you know, the only or the first Esperanto, uh, all Esperanto language film, which, of course, uh, is not true, you know. uh, Angoroy or a- Agonies, uh, which we covered on episode mm-hmm. seven. It was that was the first one in 64. But it, that's totally lost. And this one was lost for a long time. So I'd always heard that it was, you know, sort of the premiere, if you can say that, <laughs> Esperanto film. And then also right. it was lost and nobody could find it. So I'd never really uh, seen it. Um, and, you know, we'll talk about how it sort of came back to the public uh, as we go on here. But it always sort of hung out there like. Yeah, and then of course it helps that it's got this sort of foreboding title. You know, it's *Incubus*. It's like, whoa, boy, this sounds like a, this yeah. is a serious situation,
1: right? You know, it's it's something that is a little bit spooky, and I think you know there was some sort of controversies about the making of it. Like they had to lie to the, you know, <laughs> the monastery where they were filming about what the content was, so that they could get the, yes, the actual place to let him be there. Yes, so they knew they wouldn't let them do it if there was, you know, monsters or, you know, devils in it. So,
0: yeah, um, I don't know what uh, our listeners particular beliefs are, but if you lie to a bunch of priests and monks about getting your movie made, maybe that <laughs> explains where your misfortune comes from later. Right. Uh, the movie was, uh, of course, conceived and created by Leslie Stevens, the creator and executive producer for The Outer Limits. Um, are you an Outer Limits fan?
1: You know, I've only seen bits and pieces, but, you know, what I've seen, I've enjoyed for the most part. It's it's interesting.
0: That's another one of those things where um, I love The Outer Limits. And, of course, it's um, come back, you know, and been sort of rebooted several times. Mm -hmm. But it's never enjoyed quite the cachet that Twilight Zone has. But for my money, like Outer Limits is really, um, I love The Twilight Zone, but it it really goes places that The Twilight Zone won't. I mean, there's a reason it was only on TV for like two years, you know, back in the early 60s. Uh, and it really um, gets into like sci-fi and really weird stuff. And this is not mm-hmm. like a, this is not like an original pick. But my favorite episode would probably be uh, "Demon with a Glass Hand," um, the one okay. with the Harlan Ellison script. And of course, uh, Robert Culp is in it, and he's really great in that. Uh, "Beyond Outer Limits" and "Incubus." Uh, Stevens was a prolific writer and director, and he worked on uh, "Buck Rogers in the Twenty-Fifth Century." Oh, uh, very cool. And the TV show "Takes a Thief." And according to some sources, he wrote the pilot script. For the original Battlestar Galactica, for which he was a uh, uh, the pilot really? for, for Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, and he was a producer as well. So I'm guessing that he came up with the concept and Glenn A. Larson added all the Mormon references later. Okay, yeah. There's a lot um, of maybe. strong uh, Mormon references uh, <laughs> in Battlestar, uh, but we'll leave that to our friends at the Cast of Mormon to unravel. And also uh, Stevens was a film producer and writer and wrote a couple different films, too. And he wrote Incubus right after uh, basically uh, Outer Limits was canceled in 65. So I think this was kind of his idea to like, all right, um, what's my parachute look like? What color is it? Where am I going to go now? Let's try making a weird sort of film that would appeal to the underground or art scene. Um, I don't know how you feel about the look of this movie. Of course, it's in the, made in 65, came out in 66. So it's still, it's in black and white. But the cinematography right. was by uh, Conrad Hall. Also yeah, worked with him on the outer limits. And he became a pretty successful uh Hollywood um uh, cinematographer.
1: That's correct. Yeah, there's uh, a couple, I don't know how into the film world you are, but as somebody who studied film, there are a few like gels and things that are kind of like his gels, like things that people used on his sets and became like things he wanted. Okay. So, give me the like
0: Conrad Hall number 57 there for this one.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, a couple things that are kind of, you know, iconic things he established yeah. in the, uh, the film crew world.
0: And he uh, went on to win three Academy Awards uh, for Butch, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, American Beauty and Road to Perdition. So he was still yeah. working yeah for a long time. Yeah. And what I thought was fascinating to me is that he was assisted on the film by in an uncredited role by William A. Fraker who himself was a legendary cinematographer in the film world. And mm-hmm. as far as I could tell, this was Fraker's first film. So what a start. But he does uh, go on in his career to uh, work on films like Rosemary's Baby, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, One Flew Of the Cuckoo's Nest, and many, many, many films uh, throughout his career until he died in uh, 2010. Uh, the comp- composer of the film who's composing some of this uh, creepy sort of atmospheric mu- music was Dominic Frontier, who also worked on The Outer Limits. It uh, looks like Stevens was sort of bringing a lot of people with him <laughs> to uh, to this yeah. new f- uh, film uh, opportunity. And uh, I guess ultimately the reason that they decided to make this be in Esperanto, except uh, other than to give us the most high-profile Esperanto film uh, is that him and uh, producer Anthony Taylor wanted to give it like an otherworldly feel. And also they thought, and remember, two million Esperantists, but I guess they thought maybe misguidedly that it would appeal to a larger audience if it had this uh, lingua franca, if you will.
1: Right. I think, you know, the Esperanto had you know, a sort of cult popularity following then that it, it doesn't really now. We don't really hear about it all that much. And just, you know, unfortunate, of course. There are millions of us. Millions. Right. But, two, you know, exactly in, two. in terms of <laughs> popular culture, it's not something that's talked about in the same way. I think if somebody, you know, in Hollywood was making a, an, an Esperanto film these days, I'm sure they'd have a really hard time finding a budget. But, you know, I mean this, yeah that's this, true this thing was certainly small budget for the time you know oh, it's yeah. 125 thousand roughly which is you know a little less than a million in today dollars yeah so even even today the smallest Hollywood movies are you know in the neighborhood of you know five to ten million
0: yeah you could crowdfund an amazing like YouTube red show or movie though <laughs> in Esperanto uh, <laughs> yes. just saying uh, listeners and it's funny because I don't really know Taylor's background uh, going uh, before the lim- uh, Outer Limits or uh, Incubus. And I know that Stevens was you know, a Hollywood guy, but it does, the whole, I'm going to say some good things uh, coming up, but I will say that the film does have a kind of amateurish feel to it. I mean, it's only 78 minutes long,
1: right. um,
0: which is just like a really long Outer Limits episode, basically. Yeah. And like you said, there wasn't a lot of financing. And so I feel like, who knows what would have happened if there was more money and they were allowed to let it uh, let it run a little longer
1: to kind of add to that idea i think you know there's there's a lot of stuff in this movie that did feel a little bit like filler in a lot of ways mm-hmm. i think you know you said it is like a long Outer limits episode and i think that's very true i think if you squeezed it into a you know a, an hour long slot rather than the 78 minutes i think you'd still get the the vast majority of the story and you'd have no problems with the Following what was going on, I think it would be smoother. Yeah, granted, our, our attention spans are shorter these days, but yeah, um, you know, even for then, you know, compare it to some of the TV shows at the time, and you would you would see something with a little bit smoother pacing than this had.
0: Yeah, and as a writer, I don't mean to um, drag Stevens here, but I think if he had leaned into the more artistic elements, uh, it might have worked as well. Because you, mm-hmm. a, a lot of times, you can get a movie that is described as. Uh, atmospheric or, uh, deliberate that has less dialogue. And, uh, I- I've heard this maybe, um, very optimistically called Bergman esque, uh, hmm. in that you do have some of those shots, uh, where there is no dialogue. And we just see, for instance, the very chilling sort of shots of the, uh, the beach, you know, rolling, uh, the waves rolling over the dead bodies, you know, of these men who have, uh, been drowned and killed before. Um, so I don't know if I would quite go Bergman esque on that. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's just my love of uh, chilly blondes uh, that would make me think that uh, it's Bergman esque. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, those elements are there. Well, let's um, we can talk about the uh, plot of the film or the specifics of the film in a bit. In a bit, and also the uh, curse that Mal that I mentioned before. But uh, let's uh, let's give a rundown uh, the listeners a rundown of what happens in this film exactly.
1: Uh, this is taking place in the village of Nomen Tomb. Mm. Uh, Which is and there's kind of this um, you know intertitle sort of like long subtitle sort of uh, and like a narration that's explaining oh this is a uh, a village that has a magic well that can heal the sick and you know can maybe like make your uh, give you some kind of cosmetic enhancements in the face make you more sexy um, just in you know more flowery words as it were maybe commentary on uh, la hollywood culture <laughs> right yeah yeah you know the, the fountain of youth is in this this little town on the coast right um and then the uh we we get to see a uh, this young woman who's kind of you know seducing this this man who is going to the well to try and enhance his appearance and you know he thinks he's you know, this is going to grant him the sexiness powers he needs to seduce her. And it turns out she's just going to murder him. Right. <laughs> so. And we get the you know, idea that's...
0: that this is not a great guy,
1: too. Like he's. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like a real boar. B O O Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you for the clarification on the spelling there. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then we, we get to see them. Uh, the, the, the two uh, succubus, um, which are Kaya and. Let's see. Amael, is that right? Yeah. Uh, they're kind of talking about, you know, this, oh, they're trying to, you know, lure these men to to their deaths or, um, you know, seduce them to, to darkness, as it were.
0: Yeah, and I love In- that it's just taken for granted that Sure, there's a narrator that kind of explains things a little, but it's just taken for granted Mm -hmm. that, yeah, there's succubi succubi on this island. That's just the way it goes. Right. And then also I love the uh, commitment of the movie to this moral inversion where they talk about... I mean, they're basically like nuns, but for Satan? (laughs) They talk Mm -hmm. about... Although Satan's never called out. They talk about this god of darkness, and they have all these uh, sort of unholy catechisms that they sort of do, and... It's not there. There is no real explanation of that. We're just you buy that and then we just move on. And that's the world of the uh, of the thing here. There's a healing well and there's succubi ladies
1: hanging around. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, One thing that kind of surprised me about it is like they make a big deal out of this well at the beginning of the movie. And then like 15 minutes in, it's just gone forever. Like It never comes back at all.
0: Doesn't even pay uh, yeah. like any role in the uh, in the end, or we never really even get a confirmation on uh, whether it works or not. Uh, yeah, you know, we uh, the sh- film shifts from from there to uh, to follow uh, Mark, uh, played by William Shatner, who's like a wounded soldier coming back from an unspecified war, and his sister Arndis, played by Anne Atmar, that he lives with, and yeah, we don't know. Like we assume that he's. Wounded, he's getting healing from the well, but is it psychosomatic? You know, we don't know how badly he was wounded or how long ago it was. Right, that's never really played up on.
1: Yeah, and it's very much established through, you know, expository dialogue rather than you know showing. Oh, he's hurt, or oh, he's. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh. You can see the the wear and tear of of being a soldier upon him. It's just. Oh yes, I I was a soldier and I was hurt. It's just explained in the dialogue, which is frustrating. Walking stick. Yeah. He's got a
0: walking stick that he has for maybe two scenes and then they throw it away and then he doesn't need it anymore.
1: Then, you know, they kind of, um, you know, Kaya decides she's going to try and, um, you know, seduce, um, seduce Mark William Shatner. And she's, she's seeing it as this like new sort of challenge where, um, you know, he's pure of heart and that will make it harder to do this. But if she can sway him, then that's like a, an achievement. Yeah. Um, but they become, you know, attracted to each other. And um, Mark is, you know, wanting to get married first, which is a little ambiguous with the dialogue. <laughs> Doesn't really outright say it. It's just kind of, you know, that same flowery poetic sort of odd dialogue about, you know, well, um, I'm trying to think of the exact line, but it's, it's not coming to me.
0: Uh, it's something well uh, she's like
1: we have to do it the right way or right yeah, uh, yeah something like that and it's just like okay whatever that means like <laughs> know it's for, not very clear maybe the right way is like you know let's let's go dance under a tree and then we can have sex. Right. That means nothing.
0: Yeah. Because for her, (laughs) she's sick of like uh, bagging these uh, horrible like old men. So, you know. Exactly. This girl wants a promotion. She figures uh, if she can uh, corrupt a good soul, then she'll be um, doing real good. And you're right. Like for a film that I mean, this is only 1965, but that in a lot of ways is trying to be really transgressive. And it gets, I think it gets real close to what it wants to do near the end of the film, you know, which we'll yeah. talk about in a second. It is kind of coy. And I think it fits for Mark's character because it's clear that he is immediately taken by um, the beautiful Kia. But he's like, well, you know how this works. Like, you know, we get married and then we can do what we want. And she's like, uh, no, let's go to the beach. You know, we'll run around naked. And he's like, well, you know, we got to go. You, get married and then we can give ourselves to each other yeah it it is strangely chaste, but i think that plays into uh the character of mark
1: yeah that makes sense
0: yeah right although i mean if kia is like really you know a succubi i don't know why she just just doesn't go full hog and like tears all her clothes off or something it's like all right you want this or not put you know forget putting a ring on it
1: let's do this (laughs) yes um, uh, there's also a bit in there about where she's she tries to seduce like a, a priest, yeah. and he's like he like turns his cross around at one point and like signifies he's not pure either, so she doesn't want to do that. Yeah. So she kind of has this sort of quest to find him, that, which that, is it's very ambiguous. It's mostly just like you know these kind of there's like two establishing shots and then like two. Close-up shots—one of her and one of this clergyman—but no, there's no dialogue or anything. It doesn't really. It's very vague. Yeah, this might um,
0: this might be one of those scenes that um, when Leslie Stevens uh, was trying to get permission uh, to shoot, most of the film was shot, I think, in like Monterey County in New York, uh, New York, in um, California, mm-hmm. and um, when they were uh, trying to get permission to shoot at these different locations. Uh, one of the places that they wanted to shoot was at the mission of San Antonio de Padua in the area. And Mm -hmm. he knew that, like you said, he knew that, (laughs) <laughs> this is not a film that like the clergy would want to be shot uh, in their locations. So he told like the uh, guys in charge of the monastery that the film was called Religious Leaders of Old Monterey, and he showed them the script, which was in Esperanto. So I'm assuming they <laughs> couldn't read it, <laughs> but like, right. but the stage directions, uh, which you know would be for the crew, were in uh, English and involved like the monks and the farmers and stuff. So this is maybe one of those scenes where it's like, okay, so a priest is doing something. Uh, yeah, sure, you can shoot our your movie in our church, no problem. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you mentioned that the scene was about her not wanting to seduce that guy because he doesn't seem pure. That's a really um, good interpretation. The way that I looked at it was that she, for her, that was encouragement to try to seduce somebody that was holy because she was seeing that, you know, every, all my sisters, my succub, succubus sisters are afraid of um, the holy, but they're just like us. Like they, there are chains mm-hmm. in their armor, so I can go after her. Um, yeah. Somebody. But yeah, that was a really weird kind of scene that, um, I think we, we talk about like sex and violence as being transgressive, but would be kind of transgressive, I think for the mid sixties. Oh, absolutely. He didn't for turn it 60s, upside down. Yeah. Though. <laughs> he only, yes. he only turned it around. Like Jesus look <laughs> away. Yeah. Right. Um, we did not even got to the sister yet. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Which, uh. I don't. She doesn't really do much in the film, but yeah. His,
1: this is true. Yeah. Mark
0: lives with his sister named Arndis, who supports him, it seems like, after uh, he's been wounded in war. And there's this strange scene in the film, and I'm interested in your sort of interpretation of what it might represent. But while Mark and Kia are um, flirting, basically, and just talking about their lives, uh, an eclipse happens. And Mark mentions specifically, yeah, don't look at the eclipse. You know, it's, you, could, you could go blind. It's bad news. And then he goes off with Kia to run in the river or whatever. And Arndis comes out and just looks right at the eclipse <laughs> like a dummy and goes blind after that, or at least uh, has her sight severely impaired. And she's worried after that because, of course, Mark has been taken away by Kia. And so she ends up wandering around the island, never making it to the well to drink from the well so we never get to test the healing powers of the well that could have helped out again but yeah no well after the beginning of the film
1: right in terms of like interpretation you know what i what i sort of feel like there might be some sort of inclination towards is this you know idea of sort of you know these sort of vagary things that are Oh, you're forbidden to do this as part of your, you know, religious tasks, or your. This is something that is prohibited as part of our our culture, and sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, the punishment for that, which is kind of a, you know, a running theme throughout the movie. That's kind of what I expected them to be getting. I just don't think that that was carried out very well.
0: Like an uh, original sin type metaphor. Yeah,
1: yeah, something like that. It's but I, yeah, it's kind of what you know. I'm guessing they're going for, but that's. Yeah, it just wasn't very clear. Yeah. Um, It was more of a, you know, I kind of assumed that it was something that was done so that this, you know, they wanted to show a separation between Mark and Arndis at that point in the film. Like, oh, they're, she's going to drive them apart from each other, their family apart. And that's part of the corruption process. And they just didn't have, you know, an easily accessible way to do that. They wanted to do something artsy instead. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: artsy is a, is a watchword for this film for sure. Yes. Uh, and also gives, uh, the other, uh, character M.A.L. something to actually do because she, um, uh, she comes upon, uh, Arndis when she's uh, blind and basically she's worried about this plan because she, she also knows, and this is also part of the moral inversion that, As an audience, we should be worried that Mark will be corrupted uh, towards evil, but the evil people are worried about being corrupted towards good, which I felt like that was that was kind of a neat sort of setup, Right. And so um, we well, we haven't got to the part where um, so Mark prevails upon Kia that they should be married so that they can really enjoy each other. And they fall asleep, I guess, as you would on a sort Mm -hmm. of lazy summer day and he picks her up and he carries her to the church intending to marry her uh when she awakens and she does awaken and you get those nobody ever says like vampire in this movie but i feel like a lot of those aspects are here because she <laughs> she awakens in the church yeah. and it's like ah she sees the the cross and the the holy sacraments and everything and it's it's bad yeah. news it's bad news
1: in regards to that like you know vampire comment there's something that i noticed that i think is interesting there both of the the succubus costumes, they have these little kind of like pointed collar things that run around the back of their heads. Oh yeah, and it's kind of those little points that stick off right where the the ear should be. You sure. know, um, I thought that was that was interesting. It was a, a neat little design. One of the, the more touch. original, yeah, yeah, just like a uh, just that little sinister touch. You know, it's I just feel like. The that trope is used so often with like, you know, the negative stereotype or it's you know, devil or vampire or, you know, monster or whatever it is. Right. But like there are a lot of like good creatures in, you know, mythology that have pointed ears as well in terms of like, you know, elves or like gnomes and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. It'd, be, it'd be really cool if there was something in pop culture where, you know, we had a, a hero with with pointed ears. I think that would be really cool.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is the point where the movie takes a weird turn, and it certainly uh, goes barreling towards its end after this. Yes,
1: they start exhausting their budget rapidly.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, they really commit to this kind of moral inversion I talked about before, because it's at this point that Kia runs back to her sister Amel, or Amel and says that she has basically, they, they call it holy rape. Uh, in the film, mm-hmm. like she has been, you know, violated and assaulted uh, by Mark uh, in him trying to bring her to a church. And so they plot the revenge. And you almost feel like there ought to be like three uh, succubi at this point, you know, like. Um, right. Like the three three witches or three weird women. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But again, budget. And so uh, they des- they decide that they're going to summon the incubus, um, which they do in a scene that is short and of course the budget is still
1: a problem but
0: I felt like, you know, was successfully creepy for what they had had to yeah. uh, go with.
1: Right. They uh they start using lights at this point in the movie as well. The right. rest of it is basically all, you know, just like daylight.
0: Yeah, or night for day later on, yeah. Right, or yeah. Day for night, yeah.
1: But they start doing a lot of, you know, like theatrical lighting and they have like fog machines and um, they're, like, you know, actual sets and not just, you know, like, inside building or outside building type stuff. Right. Which they probably could have gotten anywhere, to be yeah. honest. Right, yeah. So, just yeah, I think uh, they're starting to do yeah. a little bit more with that. We also get some camera moves. Like, early on, it's basically just, like, you know, stationary or, you know, slowly panning tripod shots. Yeah. We get a, start to get a few camera moves as we get closer to the end.
0: Yeah, it's neat. And the um I thought that the um, appearance of what I assumed to be the god of darkness uh was kind of cool. Um, they have some kind of puppet or something uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know, backlit and then we see the shadow of it in the fog from the fog machine, which, you know, at that point you can have a normal size puppet and it looks really big and it's sort mm-hmm. of looming behind this broken or ruined structure uh where they summon the incubus from and so that was cool and the guy pops out of the ground <laughs> in a in a practical mm-hmm. effect that always works if you can get an actor to uh, get in a hole in the ground yeah and our uh our titular character has emerged and he's a he's a bad guy yeah We don't really learn anything
1: about him other than <laughs> this is true he is just he a just kind of like force of destruction yeah. and evil yeah he is a
0: malevolent lay
1: zombies his way towards the characters and yeah hoping to defile or murder them
0: and i'm never really sure what the plot is if they just i know that they want to destroy mark and they've given up on seduction they just want to kill him but in the um kind of shakespearean way of revenge they want to make sure that he is um He's unshriven, you know, he's, uh, he's not, um, he's, he's sinned. And so when he dies, he'll go to hell. So it's a timing Mm -hmm. situation. Uh, And to do that, they sick the incubus on the sister, Arndis. And he attacks and rapes and murders her um, in a very chilling sort of sequence. After which um, Mark comes back and they fight. And Mark kills, I think, the incubus, or at least stabs him and believes that he's killed him. And at that point, uh, I think that we're supposed to get that Kia is um, conflicted over what she's done, but it's, it's a little underwritten. It's a little, a little yeah. uncertain. Yeah.
1: She, I think she says something about like, you know, like she makes the sign of the cross and says something about belonging to, you know, the, the God of brightness or something like that. Right. Um. You know, to kind of counteract your position before, Right. and there's kind of this ambiguous ending
0: oh the ending but, yeah
1: <laughs> yeah it's very strange yeah. i think it was it was kind of weak i feel like you know the the filmmaker and me says that the ending if they wanted to make their point you know stronger at the end would be to then have their wedding you know next to the well right like bring bring that back at the beginning cuz that's right. like the whole inciting incident um, that would be kind of a nice little, you know, story frame thing. But they they really just give you nothing at the end. They're just like, well, whatever should logically happen after this, we're not going to show you. Like,
0: Yeah, it's ambiguous. Yeah, it's again, arty is the real um, watchword. And I, I do like the fact, although well, I'm kind of conflicted because in an art film like this, especially when you don't have any um, studio oversight, you tend mm-hmm. to just kind of, you know, what you described would work perfectly, although it's kind of a Hollywood ending. Oh, sure. To get the steer away from that. So like the real bummer ending would be uh, Mark dies uh, either at the hands of the incubus or just of his wounds. And Kia's you know, brought back into the fold uh, of Mm -hmm. evil and probably punished for what she's done. And like the Lord of Darkness reigns over all. You know, you see that in (laughs) films like um, like Manos, Hands of Fate, which is like, what Mm -hmm. are you even trying to do with this movie? Like it's an end. Uh, and I don't like, you know, the propensity towards Hollywood endings, but at the same time, story structure. Come on. But the end of this film is, yeah, Mark makes it back to the church and it's ambiguous as to whether I mean, we, I think we, we can feel that his soul is safe, but it's ambiguous as to whether he's going to live or not. And Kia, like you said, she does declare uh, her allegiance or at least her intention to follow the Lord of uh, Brightness after this, at which point the incubus turns into a freaking goat. Yes. And just, like, mauls her, basically. <laughs> and then you've got this... You were talking about camera moves before. Uh, yeah. We get this whole uh, handheld scene where uh, the goat is just, uh, I think,
1: attacking nuts. her. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't really want to think about what else could be going on. Um yeah. And she struggles and breaks away somehow and then gets back into the church with Mark. And, yeah, like you said, that's fine. fine that's pretty much it.
1: Right. I think they, you know... I liked the goat thing. I almost wish like it's a good reveal at that moment. But like I almost wish that that had been, you know, the actor had been in the goat costume the whole time because like (laughs) I think it would have sold the creepy factor a little more, especially in some of those early shots. And like, yeah, I thought that would have been cool. I wish that they had they had done that.
0: Yeah. uh, Not until um, the the witch in 2015 would a black goat be used uh, to such great effect. Uh, this film yeah. premiered at the San Francisco Film Festival uh, in 1966, and the Esperanto enthusiasts in the audience, reportedly uh, 50 to 100 people, did not enjoy the film's use and execution of Esperanto, uh, calling it uh, laughable and the pronunciation bad. I wouldn't call myself such an expert to rate other people's uh, pronunciations, but I could, I could see that criticism. Apparently, mm. the... Um, Actors had about 10 days, I think, to sort of rehearse and learn their lines and they were just kind of doing them by rote, you know, phonetically. Right. It, it but there shows.
1: was. Yeah. But supposedly there was nobody there to like adjust pronunciation oh, they on set. Oh, didn't have a coach. OK. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense. Slow budget. Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> apparently, um, due to the uh, sort of impenetrable nature of the dialogue, and also, a couple scandals involving cast members, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yes. Uh, the film could only find distribution in France. And uh, apparently, the French liked it. Uh, go figure. Um, I guess yeah. that art thing worked out. Um, in 1993, uh, producer Taylor attempted to create a VHS release, but he was told by the company that stored the negative print that a fire had destroyed all the prints of the film. So he thought he was out of luck. But it turned out there's a copy uh, archived in the collection of the uh, Cinémathèque Française in, Fran- in Paris, mm-hmm. and this was the French release. Uh, so he got his hands on it, and it turns out it was not in very good condition, and it had um, French subtitles, like hard-coded on the film. Right. So the Sci-Fi Channel, of all places, funded a restoration of the print, and they just uh, superimposed English subtitles over the French ones, and the film eventually got a DVD release in 2001. And I find it ironic that a film that uses a language that was created to erase the barriers between cultures would first only be readable in French and now can only be read in English. Uh, What if there were no titles? Do you think that this film would be apprehendable without any subtitles at all? I mean, do the words really add anything (laughs) to how, I feel like,
1: I feel like you wouldn't get it until near the end when like there's the goat monster. They're kind of, they're kind of malevolent, but you don't really get that they're. They're like evil spirits. You know, yeah, something. you don't get that they're succubus until somebody says that. Yeah. Because, like, you know, they're not, you know, like when I envision a succubus from, like, you know, mythology and, um, you know, general cultural D&D um, depiction. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's it's nothing like what we saw on screen, much more, you know, dominatrix plus devil sort of thing. <laughs> right,
0: yeah. Uh, that's part of, uh, their, their charm and their allure is that they seem so innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I feel like time has been kinder than the initial audiences were because this film does uh, show a 71% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Amongst
1: Really? The yes. Wow. That's high. That's too <laughs> high.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's not a perfect film. Uh, in any way yeah. it has rather a, a rather motley cast uh william shatner is good uh if a little stiff as mark mm-hmm. uh shatner of course had been a mainstay in tv guest roles in the 50s and 60s um, mm-hmm. and he was interestingly he was in the famous uh, richard matheson written and richard donner directed episode of the twilight zone nightmare at Twenty Thousand feet
1: mm-hmm. which
0: is the uh there's something on the wing one uh, yes he was also um in an episode of the outer limits called cold hands warm heart so that's probably uh, where Stevens sort of got onto him. Uh, and in the mid-60s, he had had a few recurring roles on lawyer and doctor shows uh, until his appearance in Incubus. But his really big break came in, you guessed it, 1975, when he starred as Jeff Cable in the TV series Barbary Coast.
1: And of course, oh, okay.
0: that didn't last for long, uh, but it was a role, I think, that showed a lot of his uh, range of potential. And from there, he'd go on to find success with T.J. Hooker in the early 80s. And hosting nine, uh, rescue nine one one in the nineties, and of course um, the pricelinecom spokesman.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, miscongeniality as well. Yes, of course. I think that was probably my one of my favorite more recent roles that I've seen him in.
0: Yeah, it's, he's great in that, and also it's great because it, it plays on you know his sort of cultural cachet and his uh, the fact that he is a star. Mm-hmm. And he's still kicking around today. You should follow him on Twitter. He's a, he's a real hoot. Definitely. What'd you think of his uh, performance in the film?
1: Um, you know, I think it's pretty good. It's not, you know, amazing or anything. Yeah. I would say out of all the the performers there, I think, you know, our star is is Kaya, really. It's not Shatner, it's not arndis or Incubus or Amiel. Sure. I think her performance
0: played by Allison Ames.
1: Correct. Yeah. I think her her performance was the strongest in terms of the the subtlety and sort of subtext in, in what she was saying versus how she was reacting to things happening. Yeah. But um, you know, in Shatner, his his style is very much sort of, you know, direct. It's it's uh how do I describe it? Um <laughs> it's like a you know a focused beam of acting. You know, it's like, sure. oh the acting is over here. I will beam at this now. Sure, oh the yeah. acting is over here now, let me Focus on my acting this way, it doesn't really
0: it's like a yeah he's laser focused
1: yeah, he doesn't have like this sense of space the way that other actors do. He just kind of yeah focuses in on one particular small thing or moment, and that is that is the whole moment for him.
0: I did yeah, I think he communicates um fairly well, mostly because I think that he really learned um, this script well, like in terms mm-hmm. of handling the the dialogue, you know, there were no real pauses in the way that he delivered. Uh, his lines. I felt like he was very solid, and and like I said, maybe he was not given the chance to, or maybe he didn't have the confidence to really let mm-hmm. it rip. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's you know he's the hero. He's the male ingenue, so what else right. to expect from him? I, I liked your comments about Alison Ames. I think that she um, did do uh, a great job. Um, she had a career mostly in TV in the 60s, but she pretty much disappears after Incubus. Uh, she herself appeared in two episodes of The Outer Limits. Uh, And in one of them, I thought this was interesting, um, her character's name was Arndis. Interesting. So that is a uh, name that Leslie Stevens recycled. He also recycled her into being his wife in in 1965. They were married uh, soon after the production of this, but they divorced uh, a year later in 1966. Interesting. Yeah. Speaking of Arndis, and Atmar played the sister uh, Arndis. Uh, Atmar was an actress and model, and, you know, she's only got a few credits to her name that I could find. But here's the sad part, and where we start thinking about whether or not this film is cursed. She uh, committed suicide only a few weeks after the completion of the film.
1: Oh, geez. Yeah. That's really too bad.
0: And I don't think anybody, like I said, um, you know, her, her sort of the a public awareness and her cachet wasn't very high, so I don't even really know what was going on. All I know is that uh, she wasn't around after that. Um, Eloise Hart plays, um, Amel, the other sister of, uh, Kia, and she has had a um, guest appearances on TV, handful of movie roles in the sixties and seventies. Um, I think she has a very brief role in uh, Kentucky fried movie. If you've seen that film, I have not, uh, she plays a political commentator, uh, who sort of comedically makes a point by flipping the bird at her conservative opponent. um, Continuing this strange theme of tragedy with the film, her daughter, Marina Elizabeth, was kidnapped and murdered in 1968. Oh, jeez. You know, a couple years after the film was completed. Uh, yeah. The crime was never solved, but it was speculated that she may have been one of the victims of the Manson family, uh, who would later murder Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas at their wow. house, which were just a few miles away. That's and messed up. as a total weird coincidence, Tate and her boyfriend, Roman Polanski, did attend the film premiere of Incubus. Wow. Uh, who, you know, all tragedy aside, I can imagine him sitting in the audience and being like, mm, I could have thought of that. Oh, that that's a good idea. Maybe I can use that for something else.
1: It does have a little bit of that Polanski vibe. Yeah.
0: Um, and that's being very kind. <laughs> <laughs> And now finally, we come to the actor behind The Incubus, Miloš uh, yes. Miloš, and this is a strange story. Um, Miloš was a street fighter in his native Serbia, as you are, and he met French film superstar Elaine Delon when Delon was shooting a film there, and apparently Delon hired him as a bodyguard, because, you know, he seems like a tough guy, and mm-hmm. Miloš eventually moved to Hollywood, where he pursued an a uh, career as an actor. And as a street fighter, he continued to street fight in L.A. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he was in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming before Incubus, and this, Incubus was his last film role, mainly because he was found dead in Mickey Rooney's house in early 1966. Apparently, yeah. he was having an affair with Rooney's then estranged wife, Carolyn Mitchell, and apparently killed her and then himself in a murder-suicide.
1: Yeah. Ooh.
0: Yeah. So it would be really hard to not, uh, to try to deny the idea that there's, I don't know, there's, I don't really believe in this sort of thing, but it all lines up. It's it's something weird is going on with this film.
1: Yeah. I mean, it could just be that, you know, it put some of these folks in a bad headspace and, (laughs) uh, you know, the that's, that's something that really affects you in the long run. I would I never, there's, yeah. there's lots of stories of method actors, you know, doing crazy yeah. stuff when they're method acting. And yeah, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, something like this would be that far, but
0: yeah, you know, and, you know particularly was,
1: with like Milos, Milos, um, that would be, you know, something that I could see cause he's, he's very much feeling that character in a lot of ways yeah. in his performance. I don't think it's, uh, you know, too too far of a stretch to say that he's he's trying his best to really embody that rather than perform that. Yeah, in a lot of ways. He
0: yeah, a method actor. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would never lay that at the. I mean, it's clearly it's not um, speaking Esperanto. Uh, it wasn't that experience that would drive uh, this cast to do that. Uh, if anything, that yeah. would that would broaden their experiences and help them. But right. yeah, it's it's really strange. And of course, it was a tumultuous you know period. Um, I mean, some of these things like nobody can plan for being in the crosshairs of the Mansons. I mean, I don't really know what you can do about that, but this is true. It's just weird. It's just weird and tragic. I think it was interesting that this village, I'm just kind of digging into the script and some of, um, Leslie Stevens ideas that this village has this reputation for a healing well, but it it itself is also a haunting ground for demons and succubi. Like we never really test the veracity of the, the healing waters. Although there was a, a fun little scene where, um, I think uh, Kaya is a sort of throwing a a tantrum or a fit um, over frustration and she's following Mark, you know, looking for a place to seduce him. And as she goes by the well, she like throws like a rock or like she throws something in it like stupid well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But just like this, the the sort of juxtaposition or the dichotomy of like this, if you've got this holy, like amazing element, you're going to have to have this sort of dark uh, element to sort of pay the price of, of something like
1: that. Yeah. And to be fair, the more religious you are, the more demons you will see, Ooh. regardless of whether they're there. Interesting. Interesting.
0: Um, as we kind of wrap up here, did you have any thoughts that you uh, left unsaid about the film or anything else you wanted to explore? Um,
1: I think about that.
0: As you think about it, I just wanted to mention that going with the uh, vampire sort of theme that we mentioned before, um, mm-hmm. When Mark stabs uh, the incubus uh, in the chest with a knife, uh, he falls down dead. And then, to, for the plan to continue, uh, Amel has to um, sort of bring him back to life. And so she pulls the knife out, and he gets back up again. So it's kind of like a vampire being staked; like he's dead as long as uh, yeah. the thing is in his heart, you know. But when you pull it out, it's like, whoop! He's right back up.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I would say like some of the, the things that I remember best from this movie are not like dialogue moments or interactions between characters but like some of the, the sort of like odd choices for cinematography. There's a few things where like we see characters, you know, walking through like a, a window frame around them and like mm-hmm. um, there's a uh, – you know, the the shot that you mentioned before with the, our first t- scene with the, the incubus – um, some of those moments of like cinematography, I think, are you know fairly iconic and interesting. You know, they're they're showing some some real creative ingenuity, yeah. that I think is is valuable.
0: There's um, a few. Moments I just
1: wish it was like tilted more towards uh, a, a direct purpose, You're right? <laughs>
0: I mean, even in 65 or 66, I'm, I'm guessing that some of um, these things, um, these sort of tropes that you see in art films had to be uh, fairly well established. Like yeah. there's a part where the two sisters are talking and, and one is um, like looking forward, you know, to the camera or off camera. and The other one is looking, you know, to to the side to frame right. And it's like that mm-hmm. classic you know, a perfume commercial kind of, uh, kind of pose, but that I'm sure yeah. appeared, uh, you know, in the fifties or forties in, in Bergman films. So they're definitely mm-hmm. drawing on that language here to create their quote unquote art movie.
1: Yeah. There's also one scene earlier where, um, Amiel and Kaya are, are conversing and it's basically just a switch back and forth between two over the shoulder shots, mm-hmm. but it's framed really low. So like their mouths are hidden behind each other's shoulders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On that, And, like, part of me wonders if, like, that's an artistic choice, like, the things they're talking about are taboo or something. Sure. But part of me also wonders, like, maybe they only had, you know, budget for so much film and this is kind of a long dialogue scene. Right. So they just, like, re, you know, redubbed over with whatever they wanted after they got it done.
0: Yeah. Maybe the sounds at the beach uh, at Big Sur were a little too loud for the audio guy. So they're like, right. well, just ADR this part later.
1: So <laughs> yeah. who knows?
0: Um, I had thought that the uh, fight scene between uh, the incubus and Mark uh, was was pretty good. It was, you know, it was short, but I thought it was uh, <laughs> kind of brutal and visceral yeah. uh, for a '60s movie. And uh, sure. I thought Shatner did a good job in that. Um, he fights uh, the incubus at one point with uh, like a brand, like a torch. Uh, he's got a stick that's on fire, and there's a couple scenes where he's holding it fairly close to his face. In the yeah. way that I think a young actor would be like, yeah, let's do this. And an older actor would be like, I'm not doing that. Forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> the enthusiasm of youth can lead to singed eyebrows. But yeah, it was pretty good. Um, yeah. I think that he um, probably should have thrown in uh, maybe some kicks you know, or some body blows or something like that. But right. he does eventually prevail
1: against... No fight choreo in database. that set. That's, that's right, yeah.
0: Well, there's one character uh, just leading into our vocab question for this week. There's one uh, character that we haven't dug into in Incubus, and that's the black goat that the Incubus transformed, uh, transforms into. We will, of course, never know the name of the animal performer, but if we were to describe a black goat in Esperanto, what would we say? If you know the answer, you can tweet to us at Casperanto on Twitter, the first answer, the first correct answer, excuse me, gets you a free month trial of Rosetta Stone's Esperanto software. So get cracking, listeners. Let's see. Uh, next week on Casperanto, we're taking a look at what's been called one of the most inventive and weird comic books of the last decade. And one that's been a huge influence and inspiration in the indie comics market. And it's one that uses a little Esperanto. It's Saga from Brian K. Vaughan and Image Comics, so stay tuned for that next week saga on the show. Uh, Jacob, you'll be back next week?
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: Awesome, and listeners, like we said, you can tweet to us at Casperanto on Twitter, or you can email us at Casperanto at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us on Casperanto, the Esperanto Media Podcast, and until next time, cheese. Adiós. Adio. Isabella. bella